Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 370th edition of Talk Ted Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my guest co-host, Holly Louie. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, and good morning, Holly. Thanks very much for sitting in for Dr. Reamer this morning. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. And this morning, you're going to be reporting our lead story about what I call the cascading consequences of inaccurate coding, right? Yes, I am, Chuck. There's a study that I'm going to talk about, and I just think it opens the door for a lot of discussion on a lot of issues. Indeed. And speaking of coding, nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Pleasure, standing by to report on coding for transitional care management. That's going to be an important story. Looking forward to hearing from Terry. That's right, Chuck. Former AHIMA president Bonnie Cassidy will report on why the mid-revenue cycle has traditionally been under-resourced. Indeed, under-resourced. And someone who has not been under-resourced is our good friend, Dr. James Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy has a Talked In Tuesday CDI report. Perhaps for some, but not all, is the apparent disconnect between doctors and coders when scheduling inpatient surgeries. That's right. Justin Hamling is going to be reporting that story. We have much news to report during today's Talked In Tuesday, and we begin with the ICD-10 National Correspondent, Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talked In Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to a live webcast featuring Dr. James Kennedy on how to upgrade your action plan for coding additional inpatient diagnoses. It's tomorrow, May 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register and save $25 by using the coupon code TUESDAY. Here now is Tim Powell. Hey, Chuck, and thanks for having me on. Um, I would like to talk about the cuts that CMS has been proposing for the 340B drug program. And CMS has made the argument that the reason that they needed to make these drastic cuts is, is that the population of folks that had qualified for the 340B drug program had both swelled and that they needed to control the profit that was being uh, reaped by, by these providers. But one of the things that we noticed, we compared all of the 340B drug program providers based on what type of, of providers they were. And in 2016, there were 1,128 critical access hospitals in the 340B drug program. In 2017, there's 1,133. And what we see is about an equal number of hospitals that are both that are either critical access hospitals or qualify as disproportionate share hospitals. So it looks to, to us that it's very unfortunate that by going after these massive uh, alleged profit margins that these uh, that these 340B drug programs are providing, that we're also attacking critical access hospitals that are in currently in dire straits. Approximately 30% of the critical access hospitals in the United States are currently under threat of closing. So even if you uh, I can agree with CMS that these 340B drug, pro- drug program uh, providers are reaping benefits from the program, it's really just helping them to keep the doors open. And by going after the, uh, the new folks that are coming in under the disproportionate share qualification, you're penalizing the people on the critical access side that just really can't afford to take the cuts. So we're going to be looking at this in, in a little greater depth um, by August 19th, 
uh, of 2019, CMS has to respond to the, the current court case, but we think that, that somewhere in that there needs to be uh, uh, some, some uh, agreement that the critical access hospitals really can't sustain these massive cuts. And so with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's May 21st, 2019. And on this day, on 1881, the American National Red Cross is founded, thanks in large part to Clara Barton. But today you're listening to the 370th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Join 600 of your peers from around the country at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting, September 14th and 15th in Chicago. Attend sessions and conversations covering CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, 2020 Coding Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than right here. Attendees earn CEUs and CNEs, and all advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 Codebook. Visit ahima.org slash clinicalcoding for more information. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Focus Report. The Talk 10 Tuesday Focus Report is brought to you by the Capios Health 2-Click Software Solution, IOSurge. IOSurge quickly and accurately identifies the correct billing code and patient status for Medicare procedures. Here now is Justin Hammerling. Thanks, Chuck, and thanks everyone listening. This morning I wanted to talk to you a little bit about an issue we were facing here at ProMedica and how we switched from a reactive to a proactive mindset when it came to fixing our denial problems around Medicare reimbursement, particularly around the inpatient-only list. We know many hospitals were struggling with the same issues that ProMedica has, and they continue to produce claims that go straight to write-offs because they know that they're not going to have the ability to appeal these claims because they didn't meet the uh, CMS standards for documentation or they weren't on the inpatient-only list when they were booked. when surgeries are coded and the inpatient and the surgical orders comes in from the physician's office or the surgeon's office, typically they'll come in with maybe a CPT code or CPT codes, a patient status listing inpatient or outpatient, or, and uh, a general summary of what the procedure is going to be performed. The problem is that with Medicare patients, if that inpatient or outpatient status does not reflect the status set by CMS in reference to those CPT codes, that procedure will not be reimbursed by Medicare. Now, they have changed to a first cut lock-in to about a uh, 48-hour window post-procedure to change that status, but still gives the hospital system a very narrow window in order to uh, address this uh, patient status issue. And our physician advisor at the time at ProMedica really took it upon herself to be pre, uh, proactive in the pre-auditing our uh, OR schedule and going through and making sure that the procedures that were being performed were actually uh, coded correctly and the right status was being applied because she was sick of arguing with CMS on the back end as she described as kind of like banging your head against the wall 
because she knew she wasn't going to be able to get reimbursed for some of these procedures. In fact, we even had a, a case where we had to write down several hundred thousand dollars because it was labeled as an inpatient uh, procedure, but it wasn't on the Medicare inpatient list. But we did successfully argue that the $12.50 reimbursement we should get for the flu shot was allowable because it wasn't related to the procedure. So those are issues that we were facing here at ProMedica. So we, we took a, a step back and noticed some gaps and some opportunity areas in our scheduling process and how we were going to be intaking cases. Most importantly, we realized that this was a big communication gap between the, the doctors or the, or the surgical offices, the office managers sending in the surgical requests and the schedulers. Mainly that not all the information needed to quickly identify the code was provided in that, uh, that order, the, re the surgical request, and that the schedulers really aren't clinically trained. They're very logistics and organizationally minded. They're trying to make sure that the ORs are available for the procedures and everything runs smoothly. However, there is an opportunity on the front end to quickly verify, one, that the correct procedural code is being applied to those requests and verify that that patient status being uh, indicated by the physician matches the CMS registry for inpatients uh, only procedures. So with that in mind, we, we created a, a tool that uh, allowed the physician advisor to, uh, to create keywords, no, uh, layman's nomenclature, to help the schedulers quickly identify the correct CPT code uh, and identify if it's an inpatient or outpatient procedure based on the CMS list. And we've had a, a great results here at ProMedica. A uh, white paper we've done on the, on the results is up on the website as well. But just in one of our hospitals, in one year of use, we reduced our CMS claims by over $1.3 million. And that's net revenue coming directly to the bottom line here at ProMedica. So it's something we're very excited about. And uh, I really appreciate the time to be able to talk to you more about this. And thank you, Holly, and I'll hand it over. Thank you so much, Justin. That was Justin Hammerling. Mr. Hammerling is the President of Capios Health and Vice President of ProMedica. Chuck? Thank you, Holly. And thank you very much, Mr. Hammerling, for being on our broadcast this morning. Here now with the Talked In Tuesday CDI report is one of the nation's foremost authorities on CDI, Dr. James Kennedy. And good morning, Dr. Kennedy. Welcome back to Talked In Tuesday. It's been a long time. Thank you, Chuck. Grateful to be here. And Erica Reamer sends her regards to everyone from here in Orlando. Here at the Actus Convention in Orlando, much, much talk is being generated regarding the new CCMCC structure that has been proposed by CMS in the fiscal year 2020 IPPS rule. However, what I'm finding is that many people are not talking about the new codes and their CCMCC impact that is in Table 6A of the IPPS rule, I encourage everybody here to look at the new codes and to be thinking of what their documentation and coding strategy will be uh, with these codes being in effect on October the 1st, uh, 2019. For example, one of the one of the new codes will be revolving around atrial fibrillation. 
atrial, uh, what, C, what the CDC has done is taken chronic atrial fibrillation and split it into two codes. One will be chronic AFib unspecified and, and, uh, and long-standing persistent AFib. Now, why is this important? Well, today, chronic AFib is not a CC. However, CMS in its proposal is proposing for I-48.20 to be an I-48.21 permanent AFib to be a CC. Unspecified atrial fibrillation will not be on the CC list, uh, but the, but in the proposal, the splitting out of the chronic AFib code, uh, chronic AFib or permanent AFib, it will be a CC. So this is going to be an area of clinical documentation improvement or integrity that uh, HIM professionals and their CDI teams will have to embrace. We will also be seeing the new codes for the deep tissue injury the pressure-induced deep tissue damage of various parts of the body. And all of these will be CCs. And what's interesting in the new IPPS rule is that they are going to take stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four pressure sores and make them all CCs instead of stage three and stage four being MCCs. And as such, if any of these are not present on admission, the stage one, the stage two, the stage three, the stage fours are now the deep tissue injury or the pressure-induced deep tissue damage, then they, that the present on admission indicator application or the penalty for it not being present on admission will apply. Not uncommonly, I will see many physicians write skin WNL and then now a stage one or stage two pressure sourcing later, we don't know if WNL met within normal limits or we never looked. So partnerships with your, uh, your uh, wound care centers, partnerships with coding, partnerships with CDI are absolutely crucial. I suggest everybody again to look at table 6A on the IPPS rule, also, submit your comments on the proposed IPPS rule by going to regulations.gov. Type in the search box, IPPS. You have until June the 17th to get your comment in by 5 o'clock and make your voice heard so that the IPPS system and ICD-10 serves us in what we need to do. Thank you so much for the privilege. Holly, I turn it back to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kennedy. That was Dr. James Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is the founder and president of CDIMD, a Nashville-based physician and facility advisory and consulting firm. Chuck? Thanks, Holly. And thank you very much, Dr. Kennedy. And there's still time to register for his very important webcast on CDI tomorrow. It's coming your way at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You're going to learn how you can upgrade your action plan for coding additional inpatient diagnosis. A great webcast coming your way tomorrow. 1.30 p.m. Eastern, right here at ICD-10 Monitor.
You know, a great deal of attention has been focused on the front and the back end of the revenue cycle by consultants, but not so much the mid-revenue cycle. So to explain why the mid-cycle is under-resourced, here is former AHIMA President Bonnie Cassidy. Good morning, Bonnie. So welcome back to Talk on Tuesday. Why is this the case? Well, Chuck, I think revenue integrity is still new in some areas of the revenue cycle uh, management team. The mid-revenue cycle traditionally has been under-resourced, and a lot of that is because the front end and the back end of the revenue cycle have been really given the priorities in most organizations. Those initiatives got the attention and the focus of the leaders within the organizations, whether it was an RCN revenue cycle management vendor or within a healthcare provider setting. The hospital leaders are concerned that their organization's clinical documentation coding processes are vulnerable to errors uh, that really could result in the loss or decreased revenue. But without proactive HIM leadership, sometimes these errors will continue to escalate. The mid-revenue cycle management, when we talk about it in these terms today, we're really focusing on things like the clinical documentation team, clinical documentation improvement, coding, the charge capture, the pre-bill reviews, Sometimes the scope of denial prevention or denial management um, is up for grabs, but if we think of it in terms of uh, the mid-cycle, and then audits and other claim preparation processes occur in what we refer to as the mid-revenue cycle. So various survey reports have been generated in the last year or two, and they really believe that CDI and coding are high or medium uh, revenue cycle risk for an organization. So that's very significant. So we know that there's risk, we know that there's significant obstacles, yet the mid-cycle continued to be under-resourced. And many of these are because there was such a focus on speed to bill without really understanding the clinical documentation, the need for CDI, the need for quality coding, and certainly the physician education. So we know there's a need for internal champions within the C-suite of a provider setting Within the vendor setting, we have to make sure that they understand all the components of the mid-cycle because the front cycle of uh, revenue cycle is really when you're thinking about um, getting the information appropriately on the front end, like patient identity management, which in many organizations is not even a part of the front end. And then the back end, of course, is everything to do with the bill prep and the collections. But educated physicians that can lead the efforts internally continues to be a challenge. And as you hear Dr. Kennedy, that's something that is a high priority is making sure that these physicians are well attuned to what the issues are within CDI and coding. So competing priorities, competing projects, and the middle is not budgeted for success oftentimes. Lack of awareness of the importance of some of these areas that impact coding and reimbursement, lack of qualified staff, an abundance of outsourcing without quality reviews coming back into the organization, lack of familiarity with innovative solutions that really could address these challenges. Um, I often find a lack of those that really understand what it is to leverage new technology and overcoming internal perceptions that there's no need for improvement. So I think the very good news is that we're seeing in many market reports now that they're looking to bolster the middle of the revenue cycle in particular emphasis on CDI and coding. So HIM professionals must prove the return on investment and really articulate the value proposition. 
So I think the time is now for everyone to continue to stay focused and bring value and awareness to the mid-revenue cycle. So thank you. I'll refer back to Holly now. Thank you so much, Bonnie. That was the past president and chair of AHEMA, Bonnie Cassidy. Bonnie is now the president of Cassidy and Associates. Chuck? Thank you, Holly. And thanks, Bonnie, very, very much. And you can read Bonnie's reporting on this very important subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. This morning, we're reporting on another important story. It's the coding of transitional care management. Now, this is for patients who are requiring complex medical decision-making. Here now to report on why this is an important story is nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Welcome to the program, Terry. Thank you, Chuck. The Medicare fee schedule recently added several patient management service codes that have face-to-face and non-face-to-face components to them for physician reimbursement. One of those services is transitional care management. These CPT codes allow for reimbursement of the care provided when patients transition from an acute care or hospital setting back into the community community setting, which would be home, domiciliary, rest home, or assisted living. PCM commences upon the date of discharge and then for the next 29 days. Again, there's a combination of face-to-face and non-face-to-face services within that time frame. The reason we're bringing this to your attention is there's been some misinformation out there on the requirements to report these codes, which has triggered some payer audits, and we wanted to clear up any confusion. So the code 99495, that covers communication with the patient and or caregiver within two business days of discharge. This is a reciprocal communication of direct contact that can be done by phone or electronic means, but it also involves decision-making of at least a moderate complexity during the service period and a face-to-face 14-day visit or within 14 days of discharge. The location of the visit is not specified. The place of service used for reporting these services would be where the face-to-face occurs. The work RVU is about 2.11 or an approximate reimbursement of $75 for this service. The code 99496 covers the same code details, but this one involves medical decision-making of high complexity and again a face-to-face visit within seven days of discharge. The work RVU for this service is 3.05 or an approximate reimbursement of 109.80. Although CMS continues to fine-tune expectations for the services provided during the transitional care management time period, in addition to the above, the following required face-to-face services differ for physician versus and mid-level providers versus clinical staff. So the clinical staff under the supervision of the physician or other qualified clinician may include communication with home health agencies or other community services that the patient needs, education of the patient and or caregiver to support self-management and activities of daily living, provide assessments and support for treatment adherence and medication management, identify available community and health resources, facilitating access to services needed by the patient and or caregivers. The communication of the service, that 48-hour Uh, communication that they have to have with the patient. There's different local MAC carrier LCDs on the topic, so make sure you're checking. For example, in California, that has to be by an MDDO or a mid-level who has direct knowledge of the patient's care plan. So I also instruct that that should be appropriate. Sometimes I'm seeing that they're allowing this to be done by the clinical staff or the nurse, but if the patient has questions after two days after discharge with regard to their care, that may not be under their scope. The physician or other qualified clinician also may include obtaining review and discharge information, review of any follow-up or pending testing or treatment, interaction with other clinicians, again, educating the patient and then establishing any referrals for the specialized care, and then assisting in scheduling follow-up with other health services. 
some additional services that are expected to be documented in regarding the use of these codes, medicine reconciliation and management should happen no later than the face-to-face -face visit. These codes can also be used for care from an inpatient hospital setting, uh, including acute hospital, rehab hospital, long-term care hospital, possible, par possible partial hospitalization, and observation status. You cannot code any kind of uh, care plan oversight, home and outpatient INR monitoring, medical team conferences, telephone services, ESRD services, or CCM in the same uh, time frame as this would be considered duplicate. Billing should occur at the end of the conclusion of the 30-day post-discharge. Now, of course, Medicare put out on their website in 2018 saying that the date of service can be the date that you code for the entire service billed. But I would use caution in that direction and common sense here. Once all of the 30 days of the service are met, then it would be appropriate to report the code. By reporting prior to the 30-day period, you run the risk of the staff not finishing the tasks that are part of the code, so it should be completed before submitting. And they are payable once per patient in the 30-day period following discharge. So if the patient is readmitted, the TCM cannot be billed again. These codes can be billed in the can these codes be billed in the post-operative period? Not for the physician that reported the global service. Also, there's a CPT versus Medicare on the two-way interactive. The contact again must be the must be by the person that it has the capacity for prompt interactive communication, addressing a patient's needs beyond scheduling follow-up care. If two or more separate attempts are made to contact the patient and are unsuccessful, but other TCM services criteria are met, CPT says you can report the service, but CMS frowns on that, saying that there must be evidence of the contact to support these services. So again, pay close attention to what CPT says versus what Medicare also says. The reason we wanted to bring this service to your attention is that it's an important service for the patient, especially patients who've been in the hospital longer than two weeks. They need help sometimes getting back or transitioning, as the code describes, into their community. But it does require that face-to-face -face visit, that initial patient contact and medicine reconciliation with specific timeframes. And many practices are now being audited because they're trying to charge for that face-to-face -face visit in addition to the TCM, and that's a part of that transitional care management. That's inclusive. So because that's inclusive, you need to ask yourself, is it financially worth it to bill for these services beyond the reimbursement offer, or based on the reimbursement offered? You have to decide that as a practice. I would consider looking at this as part of your uh, mid-level provider service. Holly, back to you. Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. Chuck? Thanks, Holly, and thank you very much, Terry. Our lead story this morning is being reported by our guest host, Holly Louie, and a serious topic is what I call the cascading consequences of inaccurate coding. Once again, here's Holly Louie. Thank you, Chuck. I was interested to see the Central Learning uh, Coding Contest that was published in 2018. <clears throat> Excuse me. Central Learning has conducted a national coding contest from 2016, 17, and 18 to evaluate ICD-10 versus ICD-9 for accuracy and production. To my knowledge, it does not purport to be a statistically valid study, but contestants were from 47 states. They coded 4,471 real medical records in their self-designated specialty areas. 61% of the contestants were AHEMA certified, 26 were certified by AAPC. 26%, excuse me. The overall accuracy, though, is shocking. It was only 57.5%. 
Inpatient is somewhat better than outpatient at a 67.8% accuracy versus 38.8% outpatient. Experience is also a critical factor. The newer the coder, the worse their scores. And the other disappointing thing is that there really has not been any significant improvement in the years since ICD-10 has been implemented. One of the possible explanations that AHIMA has addressed is automated assist acceptance without the due diligence required to um, really validate what the proposed or possible codes are that are presented. We also know that EHRs have had long issues in some cases of um, coding accuracy and specificity. But Ahima's point I think is very important, and I think it speaks to several of our previous speakers today, in that tools do not replace knowledge, expertise, interpretation, or understanding of the coding rules. So also to our previous speakers, I think this raises questions on auditing. Are the auditors using the same flawed methodology as the coders used? I think that is a question it's incumbent on us to take a look at. But I think this study raised additional concerns that for inpatient payments, the accurate acuity, comorbidities um, are critically important for accurate reimbursement. For outpatient, they noted a lot of unspecified lateralities, failure to follow the coding rules, and we know that those equal denials and lost revenue, time for appeals, recoding. It's a very um, inefficient and cost um, expensive process. There's also the issue for quality measures that are driven by that, the new focus on reporting social determinants, and also diagnostic-driven payment models that are raising more and more attention, and lastly, surprise bills. So my question from this study is, are we missing an opportunity to focus on – we focus so much on CDI. Are we focusing appropriately the same amount of effort on coding improvement? Thank you, Chuck. That's what I have for today. Thank you, Holly, very, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 370th edition of Talk to Tuesday. And Holly and I want to thank our panelists today, Bonnie Cassidy, Terry Fletcher, Justin Hammerling, Dr. James Kennedy, and Tim Powell. And I want to thank Dennis Jones for sitting in for me last Tuesday. I also want to thank you, Holly, for sitting in today for Dr. Erica Reamer, who was on assignment. Thank you again. And a program note, next Monday will be Memorial Day. It's a time when we honor the servicemen and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our nation. So there won't be a Talk Tent Tuesday on Tuesday. We'll be back on June 4th, and I hope you're going to join us for another live edition of Talk Tent Tuesday. In the meantime, you can listen to all the Talk Tent Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Until Tuesday, June 4th, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk Tent Tuesday. Thank you very much, and have a compliant Memorial Day weekend. Talk Tent Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.